passed into the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession. In other words, let's hang on to what we've got. For we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities, but what it was in all points tempted like as we are, and yet without sin. And this yet without sin, friends, is what qualified the perfect Son of God to take away sin. As He hung there, Jesus suffered. He bled and died for you and me. Oh, we didn't deserve that sacrifice. We didn't deserve Jesus offering His life. But He gave His life freely for lost humanity. Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And one thing we did as missionaries in Haiti is simply spend time preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. You can spend all the time you want handing out food parcels. You can spend all the time you want giving out money or resources. But unless you preach the gospel of Jesus Christ, you haven't even begun to be a missionary. Paul said in Romans 1.16, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth. And I remember a time in my life, a lot of you don't know me here, but th let me tell you, there was a time in my life where I was a terrible sinner. I was a wretched sinner. And I finally got to a crossroad in my life. I knew I had to make a decision. I was involved in sins of the flesh. And I got to a place where in my life where I got to a crossroad and I was tired of being a hypocrite. And there was a time when I just wanted to go out into the world and just hang it up. I was, I was ready to just give up following Jesus, even trying. And I remember I got to a point in my life, one evening, I was at a crossroad in life, and I just remember God, I just got down finally and asked God an honest question. I thought I had sinned too much. I thought I had gone too far. And I just asked God, God, is there even hope left for a wretched sinner like me? And I felt like God was saying, Sam, I didn't hear an audible voice, but I felt like God was saying, Sam, there's still hope. And I said, oh God, if there's still hope for a wretched sinner like me, I'm going to run for that hope. I'm going to cling to that hope. I'm going to do whatever it takes. And let me tell you, God came in and He transformed my life. And I'm not the man I used to be. As Christians, we must, make, must strive to make it a lifestyle to share the gospel. It is the good news unto salvation. In Haiti, we preached to neighbors, professionals, and gangsters alike. And I remember early on, last a uh, couple years ago, we would go to the local town there close to the, the Titan compound, and we would preach the gospel to those gangsters. Was it difficult work? Of course it was. It wasn't uncommon for those gangsters to pull guns on you. And in fact, they did multiple times. They pulled a gun on Barry Grant. I don't know how often Barry came close to having his head blown off. But let me tell you one thing in particular that stands out to me. 
as we were preaching the gospel in that rickety tin roof, rusty tin roof with tarps flapping in the breezes, and rickety wooden benches that looked like they were ready to fall apart, and the, the chief of that gang sat there on the bench under conviction of the gospel with big tears running down his eyes, running down his cheeks. I will never forget that scene. And later on we did find out, he didn't immediately respond to the gospel, but later on we did find out that he became a Christian. He accepted the Lord as his Savior. And that is the power of God to take someone who was lost in sin, someone who is used to killing people, someone who is used to robbing and cheating and stealing and transforming them into His child. God can do that, friends. Today I want to tell you about the Haiti kidnapping story and how God delivered us. But today as I look across our homes, our schools, our churches, our youth groups, our nation and the world we live in, I see a much worse kidnapping taking place. Yeah, I was actually kidnapped twice and I already told you a little bit about that. Satan had me bound. I was dead. I was lost in trespasses and sins. He had his shackles on me so tight I thought I would never get free. But do you know what happened? Jesus came in. Jesus came in with His arms of mercy, love, and grace, and He lifted me also up out of an horrible pit, out of the miry clay. He sat my feet upon the rock. I'm not the man I used to be. Where are you at tonight? Satan is still in the kidnapping business, and he doesn't care how low he can get you to fall. He'll offer all kinds of pleasures, all kinds of lustful thoughts and desires. But you know what? One thing he'll do. He'll leave you hanging, empty and broken, with all kinds of chains and bondage binding you. It's like the song goes. Sin will take you farther than you want to go, slowly but wholly taking control. Sin will leave you longer than you want to stay. Sin will cost you far more than you want to pay. But oh, the good news, God is in the redeeming business. He has pulled me out of the pits of sin and transformed me into His child. No longer do I wander lost in sin. Today I'm standing firmly on the foundation of Jesus Christ. And if you haven't had that experience yet, you can have that experience today. Today, whatever your struggle is, I don't know what it is, but bring it to Jesus. Bring it to the foot of the cross. There's hope. There's help. There's healing. There's forgiveness and victory available for you but it's found at the foot of the cross of Jesus Christ. Come as you are. I never dreamed of being kidnapped in Haiti. 17 missionaries kidnapped in Haiti. Saturday, October 16, 2021. Haiti is a country that is wracked by political corruption. 
political chaos, corruption in the government, poverty, illiteracy, superstition, and yes, outright Satan worship. It's terrible. When I arrived in Haiti for the first time back in August of 2016, the United Nations had a strong peacekeeping force in Haiti. The entire force with military, police, and operations comprised of up to 10,000 people. It seemed like they were everywhere. You couldn't drive the streets of Port-au-Prince without seeing them. The UN mission started in 2004. During the next 15 years, these missions created a somewhat artificial sense of security in Haiti. After the mission ended in October 15th of 2019, it left a power vacuum that gangs like the Katsun Mawuzel who kidnapped us were eager to fill. Right here's a photo of the active gang leader who kidnapped us. Right here on this news banner it says, La This video was released during the time of our kidnapping. And what he says on this video is, What I need from the hands of the Americans, I still haven't found. I'd rather kill them. I have no problem with putting a bullet into each one of their heads. So this was what we were facing as we were kidnapped there in Haiti. Death Without Days was his nickname. Literally translated, Death Without Days. Death Without Ever Waking Up Again. Who was kidnapped? Welcome to the can base, Titi and Haiti. This is the Ray Noecker family. Here's a photo of the Noecker family just after the kidnapping. So Ray himself was not kidnapped. He had stayed back the, the morning of the kidnapping to prepare for the communion service the very next day. So you can only imagine the anguish that he must have went through knowing that his wife and five children are kidnapped by the hands of a Haitian gang. Mary and Julia Grant family, this is the administrator's family, they were not kidnapped with us. Barry spent two months of anguish and utter reliance on God as he was bombarded with calls or, or visits from gangsters, U.S. Embassy, FBI, Haitian police, lawyers, and news media alike. You can only imagine what he must have gone through as he tried to sort through all, all of that. Ryan and Melody Corver, along with their children, Andre, age three, and Laura, age eight months at the time of the kidnapping, they were kidnapped with our group. This is the whole group of the 17 who were kidnapped. This is a Google Earth photo of the cam base. So we met there on the morning of the 16th of October of 2021. And we were excited about the day. We were just ready to go and visit an orphanage. And none of us had visited this orphanage before. And so we were excited about the Saturday afternoon excursion. And we met there on the morning and we had a word of prayer and all piled into this short nose 
bus, it, we called it a bus. It was a 15-passenger short-nosed van. And off we were, never dreaming that we would be kidnapped. This is somewhat the kidnapping journey. So we drove all the way from Christian Aid Ministries down to Ganchi, where the mission was. And then right about here on the map is where we were kidnapped, taken off the road. And then at one point we were moved to this location, and then at another point they moved us to a second location. So, and then from there they moved us back to the original location. So it was from here that we hiked about 10 miles cross-country the morning of our escape. This is the Holderman Mennonite Run Orphanage where we went to visit. So we had a really good time at the orphanage. We updated the profiles and took their pictures. And some of the group played a lively game of soccer out there in the courtyard. And it was just a really good time. And before we left, they very graciously offered us fried plantains and fried chicken and cold sodas. And we were hungry at that point. It was about 1 o'clock. And, and then off we were. Ten minutes down the road, Dale was driving. He, w he had been in Haiti for about two months at the time. And Wesley was sitting in the passenger seat. Wes was the mechanic, and he had served for about a year or so. And then I was tucked in the back corner of the van. Just We were all tight in the van, 17 and a 15 passenger. And... The girls were in the front seats, and suddenly we see gangsters running down the road towards us. And Dale said, what should I do? And Wesley said, well, just turn around and see if you can get out of here. So we swung a U-turn in the middle of the road, and now we're heading south the way we came, not knowing how we're going to get back to go north. Because in Haiti, you don't have many road options. You have to pretty much stick with the main roads or else you might be bouncing through the mountains for hours. So, next thing we know, there's a, a pickup load of gangsters coming our way. And our van couldn't drive as fast as the gangsters pick up. And now they're coming around us. And they had big guns. And... They're, they're passing us, and I'm thinking, all right, this is great. Like, they can keep going. Like, in Haiti, you pass people. It's common. This happens all the time. And so I just figured, oh, well, they're after someone else or going somewhere. Suddenly, <coughs> we nearly T-boned them right there. And now we're looking. They cut smack in front of us, and there we were. Now we're looking down the barrels of big guns, AK-47s, M-16s, military assault rifles. And let me tell you, when you're looking down the barrels of guns, you do some quick thinking. We were crying out to God, Lord, save us! God, be with us! Protect us, Lord! And suddenly, they motioned for us to turn around with their guns. And we thought God had already answered our prayers. We said, oh, thank you, Jesus. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Thank you, Lord. 
And we thought we were good to go. But we get up to this intersection and they had an ambulance parked broadside across the road. And yes, it was a real ambulance. They had hijacked this from a, a clinic or a hospital. And it's unbelievable how many gangs, how many vehicles this gang hijacks. They kidnap the drivers and steal the vehicles. And I tell you, it, it came pretty close home. Just last week, we came back from a, a trip to the Mexico border to work with the migrants there. And, and right now, currently, there's migrants that are coming to the U.S. from Haiti and different countries in South America. And I met three men. We were only there for a week. I met three men from three different camps, refugee camps in Mexico who were physically injured by the same gang as we were kidnapped by. The one had his elbow shot. The other had his, his ankle shot. And the other had a gun jabbed in, jammed in his face so hard that his, he needed surgery to fix his eye. His eye was constantly watering. Pray for Haiti. They need your prayers. I came back with a burden, friends. This was last week, last Wednesday, I believe, we came back. And so there we were, and now they, they, again, were looking down the barrels of guns. And now we're pinned from behind and from the front. And now they motion for us to take a right-hand turn into this narrow side street. And so as, we, as our vehicle left the road, my heart sank. And they come running down the sides of the vehicle. Guns, guns, give us your guns, all your guns. Guns. We don't have guns. Guns, guns, give us your guns, all your guns. Guns. We don't have guns. We serve Jesus. God is our protector. And at that, they finally believed us. And we sat there for about 10 or 15 minutes. And we were being robbed very low-key. We, we expected we could get robbed in Haiti, but not kidnapped. As far as we knew up until this point, there were no um, white Americans being kidnapped by the Haitian gangs because typically they feared the U.S. military and they wouldn't typically kidnap white Americans, but this time was different. I don't know why. And so... They, we were being robbed just real low-key, and it was all very confusing because I figured at this point they're going to rob us. They're going to take everything we have, and then we're going to be on our way. But it was not to be. After 15 minutes or so, that we, uh, the caravan started moving down this narrow path, and we made a left-hand turn right here by these blue buildings on this road, and the road widened in front of us. And we were traveling very slow because it was a washed out road and suddenly from behind the ambulance they thought we weren't keeping up well enough with the other vehicles. They come running up, pulled open the driver's side door, grabbed Dill, pulled him out of the vehicle, smacked him across the face and they loaded him face down in the back of the ambulance. And we were crying, Lord, save Dill! God, save Dill! We didn't know if we would ever see Dill alive again. 
And then a gangster jumps in our van, puts it in drive, and we go on the wildest ride of our lives. Our heads hit the ceiling multiple times. We were driving so fast, I was sure we were going to have an accident. And I was about half hoping we would. I just figured having an accident would be better than all this chaos. At least we would have to stop and think about life or something. Right here he is. La Mosanju. Death without day. Wilson Joseph is his real name. The most wicked man I have ever met. On a phone call with Barry Grant, he said these words, I serve King Lucifer. I serve King Satan. But you know what? Jesus said in John 3.16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. And that whosoever is good for you and me. It's good for the gangster down in Haiti. And oh, I believe it's possible. Pray for the gang. Pray that they would turn from the darkness of serving Satan to the light and love of Jesus. Here's another photo of him with two assault rifles and two pistols tucked in his shorts. So our ride ended in this parking lot, and it was a long process of time. Now, now they brought out the drugs and alcohol, and they were smoking cigarettes, and they were just laughing and smiling and having a good time. And they opened the doors of the van, and they're looking us up and down. And I believe they thought they had a pretty good catch. And we didn't know what was going to happen next. Again, they just robbed us real low-key, just took a few more phones and a little bit more cash. And it was all just very confusing. We didn't know what was going to happen next. And pretty soon, there was a gangster that jumped in our vehicle, and we started driving down this lane, this road. And I'm thinking, I know this isn't the, ra the road that we came in on, but Surely this ordeal has got to end. This was now two or three hours after we were taken off the road and time was ticking by. And I'm thinking, surely this road is going to wrap a loop around and we'll be out on the main road and we'll be good to go. It was not to be. Our ride ended beside these two buildings. And as we pulled up there and stopped, there were two men who were bound hand and foot they, they brought them out of this, the left-hand door of, this, of the top building and moved them down to the... Later we found out this building they call the devil's house. And they were bound hand and foot, so they had to hop like this. Very thin and very in bad shape. And later on that night, we heard two gunshots in rap rapid succession. And as far as we know, we never saw those men alive again. So there we were, and again we sat there for a long time. And finally they robbed us. They took everything we had. They took our phones and all the cash in our wallets and gave us the empty wallets. And Except I thought they had taken all of the cash. Matt Miller was able to slip away a little bit of cash 
And it came in very handy during our escape later on. It seemed like God just worked out those little details. There we sat. Time was ticking by. And, and finally, up until this time, I was pretty content to just sit in the corner of the van. And finally, I decided it's time to talk. And there he stood, La Sanju, death without days. And since I knew the most Creole, I, I got up and I, I went over there. And I said, hey, you took our phones, you took our cash. I said, what more can you take? I said, let us go, please. I was just trying to reason with him. And at that point, he shook his head no. He said, give me $3 million and I'll let you go. What? Three million dollars? I said, we don't have three million dollars. And besides, we work for a mission. We don't have three million of God's dollars to give you. And he said, give me three million dollars and I'll let you go. What? Three million dollars. I'm thinking, does this guy expect us to have a big box of money with three million dollars in the back of the van? I said, we don't have three million dollars to give you. And at that point he said, well, okay then. Pretty soon they started taking the girls out of the van and lining them up in front of the devil's house. And suddenly it dawned on me. The, there was a gangster who, after the girls were out, who stood there by the van. And he was trying to keep us men inside the van and, and they were planning to take the girls out. And and finally, I, it, there was just a pause, like 30 seconds or so. And I said, out of the van, out of the van, everybody, out of the van. And there was no stopping us. We were coming out of the van. They were trying to keep us in there, but we were coming out. And I don't know what they had in mind, but they didn't have good in mind for the girls. So I went around the side of the van and, and stood in between the, the gang leader and the girls we were singing, we were praying, we were crying out to God. We were singing the song from Psalm 34, verse 7 and 8. The angel of the Lord encampeth round about them that fear him and delivereth them. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who trusteth in him. And oh, I believe the angels were around us. I don't know, maybe this is a good time. Why don't we stand up and sing this song together? <laughs> the angel of the Lord encampeth round about them that fear him and delivereth them. The angel of the Lord encampeth round about them that fear him. and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man that trusteth in him. Thank you. You may be seated. Lamont Sanju said, hush the singing, hush the singing. And he took out his phone and said, this is a final video 
for this group of people. A final video. What does a final video mean? We thought that the next thing that was going to happen is we were going to be executed one at a time as we stood there. Soon he motioned for me to, to go into this little room. And at this point I'm thinking, surely they're going to start separating, separating us. Something's going to happen. And I, I paused. I just I didn't know what to do. But finally I, didn't, I decided to go into the room. And then I looked behind me and I realized that everyone is coming into the room. And we went into this tiny little room about the size of 10 by 12. It's probably smaller than this corner room. Just a tiny little room. And we were sitting in a tight circle and they shut the door. And finally, we could relax just a little bit. We knew a couple things. Number one, were kidnapped. We knew that for sure. Number two, God is on our side. We were inside that little room and it was a horrible place to be. There were bullet marks on, on the walls where bullets had struck the walls. There was dried blood splattered on the walls. All around this compound, there was garbage and litter strewn everywhere. It was the ghetto. It was a horrible place to be. Later we found out they had 11 other hostages in the adjoining room. There were two white Chinese men. They hardly knew a word of English, much less Haitian Creole. Later on that night, all those other hostages were, were tied hand and foot. And we're very thankful that they never tied us hand and foot. We praise God for that. It would have been a lot worse time had we been tied up like the other hostages. Later on that night, Lamont showed up. He opens the door and said, it's time to call your boss. Call your boss and tell him you're kidnapped and we need money to get you out of here. It's a long story, but they brought us a phone and we dialed Barry's number. And you should have heard the concern on his voice. He said, Sam, are you okay? Is that, are you all together? I said, Barry, we're all together. I said, they kidnapped us here, and they want money to get us out of here. Lamos grabbed the phone. He, he said, we've got your people. There's 17 of them. He said, we need $17 million. One million per person. He said, you don't have much time. You have 24 hours. Bring the money or else. And as he walked away, I heard Barry say, remember, you have God's people on your hands. We don't have God's money to give. And off he walked. The first night, we, there were 17 of us in this tiny little room. If we all would have wanted to have been laying down, during the night, we would have had to lay down sideways and just be packed in there like sardines. There were five to six of us men on a single person mattress with springs poking up through the mattress. And we, most of us sat propped up against the walls. And one of us sat on a chair. We'd take turns sitting on a chair during the night. 
later on that week, uh, later the next day they brought us mattresses and allowed some of us single men to, to sleep outside on the mattresses. But the mosquitoes came in there by the troves and just bit us all up. And we had so many mosquito bites, it was unbelievable. And the water, later on there was a man, he, he introduced himself by the name of Mackinson. He said, he said I'm, I'm a Christian. He, looked, he, had a, he was clean shaven, he didn't have dreadlocks like the other gangsters. He said, I'm a third party, I'm, I'm not from this gang, but like if you need anything, just let me know. I'll be the one to bring you food and water and... and if you need anything, just let me know. And so, later on, we came to realize that Mackinson is the witch doctor. He was a very angry man. And he would bring in these water barrels, these 55-gallon drums, and, and set them there behind the house. And the shower basically consisted of this little tarped-off area with... And we'd fill a five-gallon bucket and use a little dipper and just wet down and, and then soap up and do another rinse, and that was your shower. But the, what we didn't realize, it looked like good, clean water, but it was contaminated. It had what they called meek wolves in it. And those meek wolves, the water would get into any mosquito bite you had or any crack in your skin, and those meek wolves would eat around at your skin all night long. And it would, it would swell up, and you'd, it would heal over like a big boil. And the next day, there, there, we had big pussy boils. And we would pop the, these boils to leave pressure, and there was pus that would shoot out. And these boils would get worse and worse and worse. And finally... Cheryl had over 50 of these boils all over her body from head to toe. I still have scars on my feet from these boils. They, eventually, they became big, gaping wounds. We did a lot of spiritual warfare there. It was terrible. During the night, the, it was as if the children would become demon-possessed, and I don't understand exactly why all that took place, but we were against light, and it was a fight against light and darkness, and it was so exhausting. We would pray and cry out to God, Lord, in the name of Jesus Christ, help us, deliver us, protect the children. And you know, God did. But I tell you, it was extreme mental fatigue like nothing I've ever experienced before. And, and every, every night I would stand there beside the little house there and preach almost nearly every night. And by the time that first week was over, I could hardly put one foot in front of the other. And had we known in the beginning that we would be there for just one week, we would have thought that we couldn't make it for one week. But time ticked by, and in the end, two months... So there we were. One night, Mackinson came driving into the camp, and he had his radio blaring. It was on the evening news channel. And it said these words, the US government is sending troops to Haiti to rescue the missionaries. 
And oh, we got fired up. We thought that maybe God would use the U.S. government to, to rescue us and bring us out of there. And you know, I believe he could have. I believe he could have used the government. The Bible says they bear not the sword in vain. They're out to execute judgment upon the evildoers. But in the end, I'm so thankful that it wasn't the Haitian government. It wasn't the FBI. It wasn't the, the police. It was God. God brought us out of there. But they were worried, and they had brought us all kinds of snacks and food and Reese's cups. They brought us ice cream. It was like, you got to be kidding me. This is hot Haiti, and here this ice cream was all melting, and these Reese's cups were dissolving. And it's like you, the, the first, when we were kidnapped, it was like, just keep your food. Like, we want to just let us go. Like, we don't want your food. They brought enough of food to last us a week and a half the first time. But after that, it seemed like it was feast or famine. Either we had too much food or, or not enough. And so, that night they loaded everything. All the fans, the generator, they took everything apart. They had brought couches for us to sit on. It was like, it was almost like they, they treated us like a herd of pigs. Like if we treat these missionaries very well, it's going to be a huge return on our investment. And so they were trying to take very good care of us. But that night they loaded everything up and took a pickup truck out into the darkness. And then they came back and loaded us up. And, and off we were in the middle of the night. Had no idea where we were heading. And some of our group thought they were just going to take us back to a ravine somewhere and shoot us and dispose of our bodies. But our ride ended at this second location. And we got there in the middle of the night. And the next morning we walked outside and we realized it's a much more beautiful location. There was a row of coconut trees and a row of mango trees. And there were... Farmers out in the fields cultivating the soil. It was one of those areas, if had it not been for the circumstances we were in, I could have lived there. It was beautiful. So we were there for a few weeks, and time was ticking by. And, you know, there was no end in sight. And there were some very discouraging times. And finally, one morning, I just went outside, and I figured I need some time alone with God. So I walked down the row of mango trees and I stopped at the last mango tree and I was just praying, just crying out to God. I said, God, how much longer? I said, God, how much more can, of this can we even take? I said, God, please deliver us. Just help us, God. And, and as I was praying there, the witch doctor came walking down the row of mango trees and I hadn't seen it earlier, but there was a bottle sitting there beside the mango tree. I don't think I would have noticed it had he not said anything. But what he said next struck me. He was gone to put the cork on the bottle. It was a strange looking cork with wires running through the cork. And then he said these words. This is the devil's stuff. Don't you touch it or it'll bite you. Oh. And I didn't say a word and off he walked. And... But I cried out, Lord, 
What does a Christian do with this kind of information? I said, God, as I felt like it was a direct attack from Satan. I said, God, as Christians, I feel like you call us to get in the way of evil. And so I was praying and just asking the Lord what to do. And finally I decided, all right, well, I'm going to at least move this bottle out into the field so he knows I'm not afraid of it. And it's not, Satan is not going to bite us. And so I moved the bottle out into the field. And that evening, we were, and then later on we were having our, our morning worship service. We typically sang and prayed three times a day, morning, noon, and and evening, and that morning we were gathering together for our morning worship service, and I shared what had happened. And Austin was sitting there. Austin had been in Haiti for, for less than 24 hours at the time of the kidnapping. He was brand new. He was planning to, to work on the IC project with the earthquake relief in the south. And so he said, well, let's just get rid of this thing. And I said, well, do you want to have the honors? He said, yeah, sure, I'll, I'll throw it away. And so he walked over there, and I picked up the bottle. I said, Satan, I rebuke you in the name of Jesus Christ. I said, Lord, protect us. Lord, cover us. Protect us with your blood, Lord. And, and I handed it off to Austin, and he threw that thing as far as he possibly could. And Austin is a disc golfer, so he has a good throw. And from my observation, this bottle hit the ground and, and burst open. There was a red liquid that shot out of the bottle. And this was used for their sat satanic protection. They would typically put the cork on the bottle during the day and take it off at night. And so right at first, I was a bit scared at what would happen. I just thought, oh, no, what, what did we just do? But... As the day went by, I felt like we had done the right thing. Later on that evening, Mackinson was walking down the row of mango trees. And he, I could hear him talking in a frantic tone of voice to the other guards. What? Did one of you guards move? The, what? Where's, where's the bottle? Sam, you! Cut, oh, he's calling my name. Cut, bidon. Where's the bottle? I said, it, it's gone. We threw it. It's, what? No, no, no. You could just see him, see him becoming demon-possessed. The Bible says we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, against satanic forces. And now... He was bearing down on me as if for an attack. And I didn't have experience in that kind of spiritual warfare. But I knew one thing. I knew that God is stronger than Satan. And so as he's coming to attack me, I said, Satan, I rebuke you in the name of Jesus Christ. And you should have seen him. It was, it was as if a wall, an invisible wall, fell in between him and I. It was like someone just smacked him over the face. He jerked back like this. And then he comes in for another attack. And I said the same thing. I said, Satan, I, I rebuke you in the name of Jesus Christ. And again and again, he's just lunging at me like this. Like, and it was every time it was like there was just this unseen force just keeping him away from me. 
And we were, we were crying out to God. We were singing and praying and crying out to God. We were singing the song, There's Power in the Blood. There's Power in the Blood. And as we were singing and praying, it, it felt like as if God was just not allowing him to harm us. He grabbed a, a shotgun from one of the other guards and, and just stood there with his shotgun. And we kept singing and praying and crying out to God. And we would get to the end of a song and he would yell insults at us and curse us. And it was like, it was just like on and on and on. And we thought this, was, this ordeal was going to last all night long. And finally, it was getting later and later and later into the night. And finally I said, well, we just have to face him. Like we have to face up. Like the children are tired. They have to get to bed. We're, we're wearing out. And so... We started making our way to the front door. And Mackinson got up and stood there in front of the door. And he wanted to let everyone into the house except me. And he stood there and said, Samuel, we have to have this bottle before the light of dawn. Where's the bottle? I said, it's gone. He said, Samuel, if you don't tell us where this bottle is, we're going to beat you. We're going to kill you. I said, it's gone. The camp chief walks over there. He said, Samuel, where's the bottle? Tell us where this bottle is. He said, if you don't show us where this bottle is, we're going to beat you, we're going to kill you. I said, it's gone. He pulls his pistol. He said, Samuel, do you know what this is called? This is called a gun. Do you know what guns can do? I smiled at him. I said, chief, I'm not afraid of you. You know, they wanted to attack us that night. They wanted to harm us. But God kept us safe. 1 Peter 5.8 says, Be sober, be vigilant. Because your adversary the devil as a roaring lion seeketh, walketh about seeking whom he may devour. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God, that ye may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand. Stand therefore, having your loins girt about with truth, and having on the breastplate of righteousness, and your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, taking the shield of faith, wherewith ye shall be able to quench some of the fiery darts of the wicked, all of the fiery darts of the wicked, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And then, and only then, friends, are we equipped for battle. We go in the name of Jesus Christ. The church of Jesus Christ wins her battles in the name of Jesus Christ. Praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, and watching thereunto with all perseverance and supplication for all saints. You know, it wasn't, it wasn't Mackinson. It was Satan himself. And God is stronger than Satan. 
So we were here at this second location for about three weeks, and one night suddenly, as soon as we were moved to this location, just like we were moved here, we were moved out of there, moved back to the original location. And this time we had the whole house. They had taken the other hostages out of there. And I'm going to have to skip over some details here tonight, but feel free to read the, the book or read the story. Um, so we were here at this house, and time was ticking by. And there was a time when we talked seriously about attempting an escape. But we just couldn't see our way through it because some of the people in our group was very sick. And eventually Matt and Rachel became so sick. And the night Matt got sick, I should just tell you about that night. So that day, earlier in the day, we were having our worship service and as the day was progressing, he, he just said, oh, I feel sick. And, and he went to use the bathroom, and he came back. And when he came back, he could hardly walk. And he said, if, if I have what I think I have, it's sepsis. And it's going to take medical care. He said, I have to, I've had it before, and I have to go to the emergency room. He said, if I don't go, I, I could be dead within 12 hours. And so we prayed for Matt. We laid our hands on him and we prayed. And let me tell you, when you're in a situation like this, prayer takes on a whole new meaning. You pray like your life depends on it, because it does. And we prayed for Matt. And, we, and you know, we, we started putting pressure on the gang to have him released. We said, Matt might die in your care if... if in your hands if, if you don't release him. He's sick. And Matt had a rare genetic disorder. He had, he had a disorder where his, his fingers would literally start ebbing away as time went by, and he would start losing his toes. And he, he needed medication and needed help. And so that evening, it was looking hopeful to have Matt release. We were putting a lot of pressure on the gang. But by this time, God was already starting to heal Matt's body. And you should have seen him. He was laying there in the house, just shaking from head to toe. He was in such bad shape. But towards evening, it was like God was starting to answer our prayer. And finally, by the time evening came around, he was starting to regain his strength. And I said, Matt, it's looking hopeful for you to be released tonight. But you had better look sick, really good and proper, or else this gang is not going to let you go. <laughs> and so he's like, yeah. He's, I, I said, Matt, even if you can walk out to the truck when they come, we're going to carry you because we want you to look sick. And, and so... That night they came in and they took Matt and Rachel out of the camp and eventually Cheryl Kay and Sheldon were released on a separate release and Cheryl had a very uh, dramatic story as well. As, as they were released it was much similar to the 
the battle experience that we had had. It was a very dramatic release. But after they were released, we started talking about an escape much more seriously. Because all of the remaining ones of us could still walk and we were fairly mobile at this time. We were desperate. We made signs from, from cardboard and charcoal from the guard's fire. S-O-S, and we need help. And there were airplanes that would fly around circles in the sky nearly every day. After two weeks into the kidnapping, we saw almost every day there was a little speck up in the sky just flying and circling and circling. And we, we knew that, so, that they know where we're at and we're like, why don't they come and do something about our situation? And it, we were becoming very desperate. And so in the morning, we would, typically the guards were gathered close to the front porch in the morning and they would let us move around somewhat freely as long as they kept an eye on us. And so we would be in the back holding these signs for these airplanes and, and they saw us. There was one time that they would one came swooping in really low and sometimes I think it was probably dangerous sometimes the gangsters would would shoot shots at the airplanes but and then another time one throttled way down when they saw our signs and it was like we were becoming so desperate for help and we had this system we would use heads and tails tails was the Tills was a guard is coming and heads was the coast is clear. And so we had this system that we used for the ones who were holding the signs. And, and we were becoming very desperate. The constant breathing in of secondhand cigarette smoke. The drugs, the music, the drinking, the profanity. They would bring in prostitutes into the camp. And I would just cry out, Lord, how much more of this can we even take? It was wearing on us. And, and during the nights there, we would be inside the house and that cigarette smoke would just waft through the cracks in the house. And we would literally, the house was filled with smoke. We would literally have to go low to, to even be able to breathe properly. And the conditions we were in was just terrible. Monday evening, the week of our escape, there was a beautiful double rainbow in the back of the house. And that night, it rained a lot. And we talked about attempting an escape during a rainstorm. We just figured that that would be the time because the guards wouldn't be doing their normal laps around the, the house. And it was during the dry season during that time. And the dry season in Haiti, I've seen it go for four months straight with hardly a drop of rain. That's how dry it can get. Literally, the, the leaves will start losing, the trees will start losing their leaves and, and it can get extremely dry. And so it was rare for it to rain during this time. And so that night it rained hard. And we, they ushered us in the house early and the guards were out there and they got stoned. They, they did more drugs and alcohol than we had ever seen them do before. And they were, they were basically disabled. And we talked about attempting an escape. I said, come on, let's go. I said, here's our opportunity. 
They're not doing their normal laps around the house. I said, we might not have another opportunity like this for a long time. Let's go. But no, we weren't. We weren't united in an escape plan. I said, granted, we might look like pigs by the time we get out to, to Titan. I said, our feet are probably going to be bleeding and we're going to have thorns in, in our feet and, and we're going to look like pigs. But I said, by the time we get there in our houses and have a hot, take a hot shower and are cleaned up, we're going to sit there and say this was well worthwhile. But no, we just weren't agreed to attempt an escape. And I knew if we weren't united in an escape plan, I knew it wasn't going to work. And so the next morning, and that night the generator ran out of oil. And we talked about it would be really nice if the generator were running during an escape to somewhat muffle the sound, the, the noise that we would make. And so... The next day we were very discouraged and we thought we had missed a really good opportunity. And I went outside and I just took a look around, looked both ways and I saw the, prop, the, the back door and the back door was barred shut with a big split rail corner fence post and there was a big rock in front of the door. And I thought, you know what, if I just move this prop just a little bit, I don't know if we are going to escape, but in the event of an escape, if I would just move this a little bit more to the left-hand side, it would be a, a lot easier to just somehow reach out and grab a hold of the prop and move it away from the door. And so I moved it a little bit, and thankfully none of the guards saw me, and it was never noticed. And... But that morning, we could hardly believe our eyes. There was a power strip right outside the back door where the guards would typically sit there on chairs and charge their cell phones. And that night of the rain, the power strip was partly submerged in water. And so that morning, the, the chief of the guards ordered the guards to take down the power strip it was quite a process, and the wiring was not OSHA approved, but they took down that entire wiring. And I, we just sat there and all. We could not believe our eyes. I just said, wow. In the event of an escape, this is going to greatly assist us because they're going to be sitting on the front porch charging their phones now instead of back here at the door. And so... We were excited about that. Wednesday morning rolled around and we were more desperate than ever. And Ryan and Melody's children were not in good shape. They, Andre, the, the now 10-month-old baby, was actually doing very well. But Andre was not well at all, the three-year-old boy. He had parasites in his stomach and his stomach was bloated. And... During the nights, he would burn high fevers every night almost. And he was just getting in worse and worse shape. And finally, Ryan and Melody started considering what would it be like if we would have to bury one of our children while we're here. And that was not a very kind thought. And so 
we were becoming very, very desperate for help. And that morning, the witch doctor rolled in with our morning breakfast. And typically breakfast consisted of of a half of a hard-boiled egg and a small portion of greasy spaghetti, oily, fishy spaghetti. And still to this day, if you talk about oily, greasy spaghetti, it just turns my stomach. But so, and the evening meal typically consisted of, of a small portion of rice and beans. And so we were fed typically two meals a day. And, and uh, that morning he rolled in there and Wesley asked him, he said, hey, could you bring, the generator's been out of oil for like two days, could you bring oil for the generator? And he said, yeah, yeah, sure, I'll bring the oil. But we were not banking on it. Mackinson was one of the most forgetful men that we know of. He, we would run out of toilet paper. We would remind him ahead of time, hey, we need more toilet paper. And he would forget, and then we'd start using the baby wipes. And then he'd yell at us for using the baby wipes. He said, hey, that's for the little girl. You're not supposed to use the little girl wipes. And so we, he would eventually bring us toilet paper. And so we weren't banking on oil, but he said, yeah, yeah, I'll bring you oil. And that morning, we decided that Wesley should go do some scouting. There was a small opening into the thicket right behind the outhouse. And we just thought if he would go in there and, and do some scouting and look around and see if he could somewhat scout out a trail. And so we did the heads and tails system on the, on the guards. And that morning he spent probably 45 minutes to an hour in the thicket. And as he went into the thicket, Ryan and Melody were more desperate than ever. And Ryan just prayed. He said, Lord, if you allow Wesley to come back, and to say that he thinks we can make it, then let it be so. And if he comes back and is discouraged and doesn't think that we can make it, then, then let it be so. Unknown to Ryan, his wife Melody prayed a very similar prayer. And so, as the day went by, Ryan was walking laps in the back courtyard. And he was just crying out to God. And... Melody and Sherilyn were sitting there on the porch railing. And, as, and Melody was combing Sherilyn's hair with a plastic silverware fork. It was the only comb that the girls had for the two months of our captivity. And as she was combing her hair, she was relating a story that had happened to Ryan's grandparents on his mom's side. They had three handicapped daughters. They were physically and mentally handicapped. They had cerebral palsy. And they wanted to take care of their daughters, but they were now getting older. And as time was going by, they realized they could not take care of their physical needs. So they sent them off to a handicapped care facility. And while they were at the facility, there was one of those girls was raped multiple times by a male staff member. Finally, there was a, a lump growing in the chest of this one girl. And 
the man who had committed the crimes realized he'd been found out. He went and turned himself in, and he served a month less than 10 years in prison for the crimes he had committed. And the hospital had to do CAT scans. They thought it was, they thought it was a, a tumor or something, and so they checked her out and realized that she's pregnant, there's a child. And so the hospital called the family and said, hey, we have to come out and talk, it's important. And they came out there and they sat around the kitchen table and they said, your daughter in the hospital is pregnant. They said, we've got you covered. All you have to do is sign right here. We'll take care of the abortion. Oh, it took faith. Friends, it took faith. They knew what it was like to have three handicapped children, and they, the hospital said this child would never be normal. But they said, no, we can't do it. They said, two wrongs don't make a right. And so even before he was born, one of the uncles stepped in and offered to take care of him. Grant Bontrager was born prematurely, a healthy, normal baby, a natural birth to a woman who was completely, completely handicapped, laying in bed, weighed 60-something pounds, I believe. A normal, healthy baby, a natural birth, weighed three pounds and six ounces at his birth. Today, Grant stands a towering six foot three inches tall. It's flipped from his birth weight. And he has one of the most powerful testimonies I've ever heard. God has done a work in Grant's life. If you have a chance, listen to Grant Von Traeger's testimony. So as, as Melody was relating that story to Sherilyn, Ryan overheard the story, and he felt like God was telling him, Ryan, I want you to take the same step of faith as what your grandparents took when they chose to accept this child. And it shook Ryan up. He could not believe that God would compare a step of faith that his grandparents took to our escape. So that, that morning, Wesley came back from the thicket with a big smile on his face. And he said, I think we can do it. And at the 12 o'clock worship service, we sat together and Ryan shared the story about Grant Buntrager. And finally, Ryan said, it's up to you. He said, I don't think the conditions are going to be perfect. But I feel like at the next good opportunity, God wants me to take my family out of here. He said, it's up to you. He said, you don't have to come along. He said... I believe what the, grand, what the, what the gang told us is I, I feel like you're worth more alive than you are dead. I feel like they were just threatening us. The gang had laid out in plain terms. They told us, if some of your group escapes, we're going to kill the ones remaining. If, if you escape and we catch you, we're going to kill you. 
if you get away from us, our leader is going to kill us. They laid that out in plain terms. He said, I feel like you're worth more alive to the gang than you are dead, but it's up to you. What do you think? And so he left it open for us to share. And I spoke next. I said, yeah, I felt for a long time like God wants us to take a step of faith and allow the results up to him. And so we all shared. We went down the, the line. And finally, for the first time in two months, our entire group was united in this one decision. We would attempt an escape. There is power in unity, friends. Brothers and sisters, when people pull together in the same direction, when they work united for one cause, there is power in unity. And so... It felt like we had escaped before we, we even began. We were making last-minute preparations. We were packing water bags. We were, we were making last, just doing what we could. And the, the back door there was like a, a barn door. It had two slats of wood and with cross braces. And there was a, a small crack about a size of a half an inch in the middle of the door. And we figured if we would take a small stick inside the house, we would be able to poke through the crack in the door and roll the rock away from the door. And so, and so there we were just making last minute preparations. And, and that evening, the witch doctor rolled in there with with the evening meal and Wesley got up to remind him about the oil for the generator and then he stopped. He felt like God was just telling him, I have this all under control and so he sat down again. And some of the rest of our group reminded him, we said, hey Wesley, aren't you gonna remind the witch doctor about the oil? And he said, well I was going to but I feel like God has it all under control. And so we were good with that. We knew that if we were going to escape, that God had to be in the picture. And so we were willing to leave it at that. And later on that night, we moved the couches from the, this side of the devil's house to the back side of the house. We figured it would be better there. That way, when the guards take their rotation, when it's their time to sleep, they wouldn't be sleeping in front of the door where we would be escaping out of. And we wouldn't have even had to do that. God had this all planned out. And so, typically during the daytime, they would have seven, around five to seven guards, armed, armed guards, at least more or less. And during the night, they had seven to ten guards. They, the, guard, the night guards would bring in really big guns. And that night, that evening, as the evening was coming on, earlier that day, there were no clouds in the sky. And that evening, the storm clouds were rolling in, and there was one of the most beautiful, the sun was shining down through the clouds. One of the most beautiful sunsets we had seen up until this time. And we were rejoicing. We were fired up. We sang the song, Is that the lights of home I see? Do I feel a breeze from the crystal sea? 
If that's the Lord standing high on heaven's balcony, that's the light of home. It's a welcome sight to me. And I remember thinking, oh, this is the light of home. It's either the light of our earthly physical homes or it's the light of our eternal heavenly homes. And it didn't matter which. We were ready to go. And so that, that night it started raining just a little bit. And the guards ushered us into the house early again that night because of the rain. And they moved those couches from the back of the house to the, to the front porch there. And I'm thinking, whoa. Wow, God, you have this all under control. Like, it's going to be a lot better off if the couches are front there than even than if they are back here. And so we were just rejoicing. It was like we were just watching a miracle unfold before our eyes. And so that night, as we were in the house there, we were making last-minute preparations. We figured we would take a time frame between 1 o'clock and 3 o'clock. We figured that would be the time when the gang is the most drowsy and tired. And it seemed like there was, there was somewhat a time where they would settle down just a little bit during the night. And so we figured we would take that time slot. But we weren't sat on this night. We thought if it doesn't work tonight, we'll try another night. And that night, it was very unusual. Typically, the witch doctor would go home for the night after he gave us the evening meal. But that night at about 9 o'clock, he opens the door and stands there in the doorway. And he says these words, Pagan Luil, there's no oil for the generator. I'm just sitting, oh. And I said, well, it'd be kind of nice to have oil. Ryan was there fanning Andre with a, a paper plate and he was burning another high fever. I said, the children are, are sick and it'd be, you know, be kind of nice to have oil. And he stood there for a long time and we were not expecting oil. But suddenly, and he pulls out his phone and dials the second chief's number. He said, hey chief, there's a problem. The generator's been out of oil for, for two days. Could you have someone send oil for the generator? I don't know where the oil came from, but that night they must have went to Port-au-Prince to, to fetch the oil. But next thing we knew, there was a motorcycle that drove in probably a half hour later. And before we knew it, brum, 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 and the generator was running. And I said, oh God, I know you could work this miracle without the generator running, but you're even going to provide us with background noise for the escape. And so the generator was running, but as the night waned on, I heard the, ge the generator go, run, 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 run. And I said, oh, oh Lord, just please keep that generator in gas. I, gas was a huge issue during this time. The gangs in Port-au-Prince had the fuel supply tied up and gas was costing as much as $10 US per gallon. And it was very unusual to run out of gas during this time. And that night I just prayed, oh Lord, just put gas in the generator. And I don't know, maybe it was my own imagination, but I could just picture the angels out there just, just putting more gas in the generator, but I don't know. And so 
we, we didn't sleep very much that night. And we nestled down for just a little bit. And as the night went on, I heard the, the chief of the guards rousing the guards. He said, hey, get up and do your job. Get out there and quit being lazy. And he would often rouse the guards during the night. They would sort of slumber and, and he'd wake them up. And they'd get up and do their circles around the house and shine their lights. And this night was no exception. And so... That night, we got up at 1 o'clock, and my legs felt like jelly. It seemed like when it actually came down to it, it was a lot more difficult than what I thought it would be. I could hardly even stand there. I just felt like my legs would, would give out on me. And, and so we were trying to be quiet, and we were just making last-minute arrangements, and you know, it seemed, I was hoping it would be step one, step two, step three, and we'd be out the door. But it was not to be. There was 12 of us in, in, this, in these two rooms, tiny rooms, and we were making a lot of noise. And it seemed like the guards knew something was happening, but just couldn't quite lay a finger on it. We were moving mattresses around and... and we were spying on the guards and they were moving around and doing their laps around the house and shining their lights. And, and then Wesley heard this man by the name of Mr. Attitude. He had a horrible attitude. He was a very mean guard and so we had nicknamed him Mr. Attitude. And Mr. Attitude said these words, Mue santi bonje, I feel God. And you know, I believe if a man like Mr. Attitude felt God's presence, I believe God's presence was right there with us that night because we could feel His presence there too. And we were just making last-minute arrangements and finally it seemed like the guards sort of settled down and we figured this is the time. And so Wesley poked the stick through the crack in the door and thunk the rock fell away from the door. And you know how it is when a heavy substance hits the ground. It vibrated the house just a little bit. And Ping, the chief of the guards, came running around the side of the house and stood there in front of the door. And Sherilyn saw him through the crack in the door and said, there he is, it's Ping, it's the chief. We hit our bed so fast. We were sure he was going to come in the front door and call us out for an attempted escape. He stood there for probably a good minute or so and inspected the door. And then he went and sat down on the front porch. And we were, we were back in bed thinking, oh no, this is not our time. This is just not the right night. I guess God has something else in mind. And so we were nestling down and Ryan, Ryan and Melody put the children down to sleep and they, we were falling asleep. And finally, after a long time, I decided time was running out. We were nearing the end of our escape window. It was about 10 minutes away. And I decided, you know what, before we give this up entirely, I'm going to go and talk to Austin one last time. And Austin was there at the door still spying on the guards and I said hey Austin what do you think should we just 
give it up. Like, you know, ping came and it just don't seem like things are working out too well. And up until this time, Austin was not agreed until the last minute to attempt an escape. And, and finally, I heard words that I could not believe. I'll never forget these words. Austin said, you know what? God blinded his eyes. He said, let's go. It was like a light bulb moment. It was like, I was like, you know what? You're right. God did blind his eyes. Let's do go. And so I went back and I said, hey, hey, Ryan, Melody, do you think we should give this another try? And they said, yeah, sure. Yeah, why not? And so they picked up the children and they whimpered just a little bit, but not too much. And Wesley and, and them were working the back door and they got the door open and Wesley stepped outside and he took a look this way and didn't see any guards. He went around the, into the, the shower house and pulled back the tarp and he saw th three guards sitting on the chairs in the back courtyard playing on their phones. The guards were wide awake during our escape. He went back to the outhouse to see if the guards could see our point of entrance into the thicket, and he thought it would be really, really close, but not quite. And so he came back and said, all clear. And we filed through the door, single file. And Dale and I were the last ones out the door. I shut the door and put the rock back in place, and Dale grabbed the prop and put it on the door. And off we were right behind him. We were trying to be quiet, but 12 people in a thicket, men, women, and children, there were vines, there were twigs snapping beneath our weight. We sounded like a herd of deer going through the thicket, and the guards were within 60 feet of, our, of where we were. We were expecting to hear gunshots ringing out. We were expecting to hear guards yelling. But nothing happened, and so we kept going. And we got to the, the back irrigation ditch there, and it was about six feet wide, and we knew we probably couldn't leap across it, so we were prepared just to slosh right through it. And I was able to jump across. I made it across and kept on running. And then I looked behind me and realized, oh, no, the girls aren't making it. So I ran back. I said, we got to go. We got to go. We got to go. And I finally, I was like, all right, then. I, I just got my foot all wet and soggy and stepped in the ditch and reached across and helped pull the girls across. And eventually we were all across on the other side of the ditch. And we started running down the irrigation ditch on the other side. And then we realized, oh my, God must have a sense of humor too. There was a bridge crossing the irrigation ditch. If we would have went a little bit farther, we could have crossed on the bridge. But, but there we were out in the open fields, and we were just running towards safety. And we were saying, thank you, God. Thank you, God. Thank you, Jesus, with every step of the way. We felt so free. And home, it, it just felt like we were going home. And so we hiked I guess this thing 
There we go. We hiked 10 miles cross country and we got up to this lake and I think Ryan and Melody were prepared for a good swim, but I said, well, let's just go around the lake. And so we, we hiked around the lake and then we got into the thicket. It was the worst thicket you can imagine. There were cactus plants, easy at the height of this peak in the church house. There were walls of cactus plants. We got lost in the thicket. The, the thicket was so thick at some points, we couldn't see the stores above us. We were, it was like, here we are down in, in this thicket. And we, were, we would just stop and pray, Lord, please help us to get out of here. We're lost, God. And, and we spent like two hours in the thicket. And we would, we would get up to good-sized villages and we would stop and the, the trails led up to these villages and we would just pray, Lord, please, just keep the dogs quiet. Don't let any dogs bark. Keep the animals quiet. And we would walk through these villages without hearing the sound of the dog. And once in a while, a rooster would crow, but roosters crow and in the morning. And so... Finally, we got out to the road. And you know, one of the miracles as big as hearing no roosters crow was I was expecting to see people along the way. And we didn't see a single soul <coughs> until we got out close to the road. Haiti has people. If you've ever, how many of you have been to Haiti? All right, thank you. There's people everywhere, and they come out of the woodworks. And we didn't see a single soul along the way. We were prepared, expecting to see people. And I was prepared just to say, hey, bonjour, good morning, you know, how are you? And just greet them and act like it's an everyday occurrence to see 12 white people walking through the countryside. And... So we got out to the road, and, and I, we had the group nestle down, and Wesley and I w decided we would be the ones to go to try to find help, and we didn't know what to do. We were scared of the Haitian police, because a lot of times these police are affiliated with different gangster groups and political parties and stuff, and so we were afraid of the police, and we were afraid of anyone. We were still in gangster territory the entire hike, and... So we saw a, a person wearing a woodcutter, wearing a, a blue shirt off in the distance. And Wesley and I decided, well, we're going to go over to the woodcutter. And so we, as we hike over there, we went down a knoll. And there was a, a man in a yellow shirt coming down the knoll. And we got up to him. And I said, bonjour, good morning, how are you? And Wesley said, Sam, he has these, those black rings that the the gangsters wear for their satanic protection and I didn't know what to do I didn't know if he's a gangster or not but I said well let's just talk to him and and uh, I greeted him and I asked him hey do you have a cell phone that we can use I said our cell phone batteries have died and we were trying to be very vague and I was hoping I was telling the truth I figured our cell phone batteries were dead a long time ago in the gangster's hands. And I said, we need a phone to make a call to have someone come and pick us up. And, and he said, well, I don't have a phone. And I said, well, do one of your neighbors have a cell phone that we can use? 
And he said, well, yeah, just go down to the neighbor's houses, knock on any door, and they'll help you out. I said, look, can you show us someone who has a phone? And at this point, we had a little bit of the cash that Matt Miller had saved. And I said, we can give you a little tip or something if that helps. And so he said, yeah, sure, no problem. And he took us up to Noel and pointed way down into the distance, probably a half a mile away, and said, way down there, the, the house there, knock on that door and someone will help you out. And I said, do you mean the one with the red door? He said, yeah, the one with the red door. And so we hiked down the knoll, and we, we get up to the house, and the, the door was really high off the ground. And so I'm like, well, let's just go around to the front and see if there's someone front there. And so we, we were creeping along the side of the front door to the front door, and I was half expecting to see a big, fat, burly gangster sitting there on the front porch. But what we saw... We couldn't believe our eyes. There were men with trumpets and song sheets. They were practicing for choir at their church. And they were professing Christians. And immediately, I just relaxed. And we, we walked right up to him. I said, hey, do you have a cell phone that we can use? We need to have someone come and pick us up. And, and they said, well, what's going on? He, and they were asking way too many questions. We were trying to be vague, but they, he asked, what's going on? Do you mean, did your vehicle break down like out here along Route 3 somewhere, or what's going on? And I said, no, no, our vehicle didn't break down, but we're just out here. We need a ride. We need someone to pick us up. He said, what? Is, is there more than just you two? I'm like, yeah, there's more than just us two, but we just need a ride, you know, it's not a big deal. And this, this had been broadcasted all over Haiti. This was news all over Haiti about 17 missionaries who had been kidnapped. And so, so he said, well, I have a phone, but it's out of minutes. I said, well, do one of your neighbors have minutes that we can... Or do one of your neighbors have a phone with minutes? And he said, well, not that I know of. And I said, look, we have, here we have 500 goods. It would equal about $5 US. And it would be a hard working man's wage for a day of work in Haiti. And I said, look, just put 250 goods on your phone and you can keep the other 250. Or if you want to if you want, you can just put the 500 on the phone and keep the minutes. And, and he said, well, the place to buy the minutes is way off in town. And I said, well, I said, look, can you just please go get the minutes? And he's like, yeah, sure, no problem. And so he hops on his bike and bikes down to town. And meanwhile, we were talking with the other man. And he comes back. <sighs> with sweat just rolling down his face and he had the minutes on his phone and he brings the phone over to Wesley and I and Wesley dialed Barry's number and next thing we heard Barry saying hello 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 and Wesley said hey hey Barry this is Wes and all we heard from coming from the phone was oh oh Oh, 
oh, the phone was just making these ohs, and, and this was a phone call that Barry was waiting on for two months, and it was like when this phone call finally came, it was almost like he just tripped a breaker in his mind and couldn't even think straight anymore, and, and so I said, hey, Barry, this is Sam and Wes. I said, God delivered us last night. He said, oh, are you, all, are you all out? Are you all okay? And I said, yes, Barry. I said, we're all out. We're all okay. I said, God delivered us last night. He said, oh, I'm on my way. I'm on my way. Where are you at? Where can I find you? And so I told him, Barry, we're on Route National 3, just as you come start going up the hill on Goat Mountain. And he should have easily known where this was, but... He couldn't think straight anymore. And he asked again, where are you? Where are you? And we explained over and over and over again where we were, our location. He said, well, can you drop a pin? I said, well, Barry, this isn't, this isn't my phone. I don't know how this works. And, and he said, well, well, I think I know where you're at. Um, we're, come, we're on our way. And so, so Wesley and I decided, well, why don't Wesley go and, and find the group and bring them out to the road? And then the, the men standing there said, well, there's, there's police down here at this little town. And I said, what? Do you mean police coucher? Do you mean speed bumps? Because in, in Haitian Creole, the word for a speed bump is sleeping policemen. And so... I said, do you mean speed bumps? He said, no. I said, do you mean real live police officers? He said, yes, real live police officers. I said, well, is there a police station in this town? He said, no, no, there's no police station, but they're just out here doing traffic checks out here. And I said, well, can you take me to the police? And he said, yeah, sure, no problem. And so Wesley went to find the group, and I headed out to the road to go to the policeman, and on our way out, we dialed Barry's number one last time. I said, hey, Barry, we're going to be at the second police check as you come up Route National 3. Barry said, Sam, be careful. He said, be very vague. He said, the FBI are involved in this, and it's a real mess. Be careful what you tell the police officers. I said, okay, I'll try to be careful. And so we get out there on the road. And you have to know how I looked. I needed a haircut before we got kidnapped. I had hair growing down over my ears. My beard was over two inches long, and I had a long mustache. And, and we get out to the road, and this was rush hour morning traffic, and everyone in Haiti knew about these missionaries. And it was like, here's a white man walking down the road looking like a hoodlum, and People would come and just look. There were motorcycles that would come and just look. There was a big, burly-looking gangster type of fellow with long dreadlocks on a motorcycle. And look. I, I saw, saw the police ahead of me, and I, I'm thinking, I'm scared of the police, but I'm for sure scared of all these hillbillies out here, and I'm heading straight to the police officers. And so I, I get up to, the, to this big, burly police officer, and I shook his hand, and I said, hey, um, do you mind if I wait here 
for someone to come and pick me up, you know, it'd be kind of nice to have a little bit of security while I'm here. And they said, sure, no problem. And so I, I went down off the road to where I could see up on the road, but people couldn't see me very well. And so I'm standing there just waiting for Barry and Phil to show up. Unknown to me, the man in the yellow shirt that we had found out in the field, he, he went and found our group nestled down out there. And he was talking with them. And he was starting to put this puzzle together in his mind. And now he comes out to the road and is talking to the police officers and just giving our group away, just telling them all about our group. And next thing I know, the police officers are waving for me to come and talk. And I, I got up and walked towards the police officer and my hands were literally shaking. I was so scared. And they said, what? What's going on? Are you in trouble? I said, uh, yeah, we're in trouble. He said, where are you from? And that was not a question I wanted to answer. It was a dead giveaway. I said, I'm from the United States of America. He said, no, no, where are you from in Haiti? I said, oh, and he saw my hands shaking and he said, Look, you're trembling. He said, what's wrong? He said, listen, you're in the hands of the state. You're with the police officers. We're going to help you. Just tell us what's going on. Where are you from? And I believed him, and I just relaxed a little bit, and I said, we're from Titan. And you could see the wheels just turning in his mind. He said, are you from that group of 17 missionaries who was kidnapped like two months ago? I said, yeah. That's us. He said, what? And he, he yelled at the other police officer. He said, hey, call the barracks below. We're going to need some backup. And, and so the other police officer was on the phone with the barracks. And he said, what? Did the gang release you last night? What happened? I said, no. Actually, we escaped. I said, God delivered us last night. What? You escaped? That means you left the area? I said, yes, we escaped. I said, God delivered us last night. He yells at the other police officer. He says, hey, we need backup right now. They escaped. We were putting the police officers at a very dangerous position by being there without any backup support. They expected they could have a gun battle with the gang at any point. And so... So it, the timing worked out perfect. Barry and Phil rolled up just as the group got out to the road. And we jumped into the two vehicles and off we were. And all the joy, all the celebration. You know, God made a way. And I just want to thank you for your prayers. We praise God for what He has done in helping us escape that memorable day. Pictured here is me, is Sam, Barry, Wesley, and Dill. We didn't have much time. We, I, we were long-term missionaries in Haiti, and I had an hour to pack my suitcases. I literally threw clothes and threw things into suitcases and zipped them closed. They must have 
weighed 80 pounds and they sent out the Haitian police and the FBI and the Canadian Royal Mounted Police because we had a Canadian with us and the Coast Guard all came out to, to uh, escort us to the airport and so they flew down a flight, the Coast Guard flight to pick us up there and we didn't have any passport stamps, no security checks, no COVID COVID uh, checks. They, they tested us for COVID on the way and our passports have an extra entry stamp without the exit stamp. They had a doctor on board and we even got to ride to visit with the cockpits, uh, with the pilots in the cockpit there. What a change to go from being a hostage in a gangster camp to being in a beautiful hotel in Miami, Florida in less than 24 hours. What does the future hold? We don't know. But one thing we do know is that the work of prayer is not over. Pray for Haiti. Pray for the gangs in Haiti. Pray that they would turn from the darkness of this world to Jesus Christ. For now, I'm working with a project we have called Stolzfus Christian Library. Come visit us sometime. We're located in Lancaster and Gap, PA, and we would love to have you come stop in and visit the library. We have books in the back. If you want to pick up the Haiti book, they're free or by donation. Help yourself to the books in the back. Today, God's word is...